friends. Welcome to the weekly episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Scott Burr. There's now a website for the show. Check it out at www.mainideapodcast.com or click the link in the show notes and become part of the community. If you join the mailing list, you'll be the first to hear about Ask Me Anything, show merchandise, products that I'm using that are helping me perform at my best, and future events related to the show. You can also check the links and connect as a potential show guest or sponsor. And if you feel so inclined, make a donation to help keep the lights on. For the true fans of this show, please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube. This helps the show get discovered organically and helps me continue to bring on incredible guests. There's also now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump around to the part that interests you most although I always recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. Scott Burr is a third-degree black belt and graduate of the creative writing program at Colorado College, author of several works, including Worth Defending, How Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Saved My Life, a must-read memoir about Richard Bressler and his 40-year involvement with the Gracie family. Scott also edited and designed Robert Drysdale's number one bestseller, Opening Closed Guard, The Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. In my opinion, another essential text for the jiu-jitsu practitioner who is interested in the real history of the gentle art. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Without further ado, Scott Burr. So Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I've been fortunate enough to read a couple pieces of your work, but actually getting to sit down face-to-face, it means a lot that you took the time out of your schedule. Dude, I, I really appreciate you having me. I'm super happy to be here. So I read on your website uh, a, co- a quote that I liked, and I'll, I'll read an excerpt of it. And it says, we don't consume a piece of art. We have a relationship with a piece of art. And I, I've, the son of a photographer mother, I've you know, grown up around art or photography my whole life. And I really like this quote. I wonder, what is your relationship to jujitsu at this stage this point in your life, given that it is an art form, but it also very physical in nature, unlike a standalone piece of art that you might view. Sure. um, So the, that quote, right, comes, I think it's an interview I did in some like literary journal or something from a million years ago. Um, and what I was talking about was how, you know, as we as we age, obviously, what we bring to um, any piece of art that we are engaged with, um, you know, it changes as, as we have different experiences, as we, we come to different insights about our own being, what the world is, how we exist in it, um, all these different things. And so... Yeah, in very much that same way, like you, what you what you what you said in your question, as as I've aged, I would say my my understanding of what um, jujitsu is for, um, what you know, what it's about, what its context is, all those things have have certainly evolved. Like I think, like a lot of people, um, when I was younger when i was you know in my early mid 20s and just getting into this um my focus was very physical right it was the the physical test of it 
was something that was very interesting to me and what I felt like it was showing me about myself and where I fit in a, let's say a hierarchy of people of like, you know, how tough am I or, you know, right. whatever <laughs> that was all really interesting when you're 25. Yeah. Right. And it, you know, you, you feel like it's, it, it, you know, when you're in that, when you're in that era of life, you're, you're very much fascinated by the process of, um, you know, how, where's my, where's my slot in the world of all people, yeah. where am I? Um, you know, am, am, am I, am I going to end up up here? Am I down here? You know, what, where do I fit in, in the whole fabric of people? And so a lot of the stuff that I was, I think that I was getting from jujitsu in a very, I would say now selfish and superficial way was related to the things that you're preoccupied with when you're in your mid twenties. And so now, um, you know, being in my early forties, um, it's much less about that. Um, and it's more about, um, being present and being, um, engaged with what's happening now and the practice being a way to, to cultivate a capacity for just being in what's happening, mm -hmm. not jumping into the future, not jumping into the past, not jumping into anxieties, not jumping into, I don't want this to happen. I do want this to happen, but just being with what's happening and trying to engage with it with a, with an, with an open creative spirit rather than a fearful spirit. Um, as we, start to recognize that there isn't just an infinite amount of sand in the hourglass, you know, as we, as we recognize that we don't have, uh, you know, infinite potential anymore, meaning that there's now the question is what can I accomplish in the next 30 years? Not just what can I accomplish in life? Right. Because, so, um, that, that's definitely been a shift. And then, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, I'm sure if I had sat and thought about it, there all kinds of sort of micro iterations in between those two things. If, um, if yeah. you go back to, um, kind of the start, I think it's interesting, the early twenties, uh, view on this, because you're right there, there's very much a, like a bravado to it. I think you are trying to figure out, you not not all of us, but many of us trying to figure out, yeah, wh where do you stack? Especially, you know, you and I, uh, we have similar backgrounds in, in personal training and physical fitness as as career paths. And that's, I think, usually stem from all the trainers and, and coaches I've met, it does stem from this desire to pursue your physical fitness and see what you're capable of to some degree. And then the passion for that spills over and you want to help other people realize that for themselves. And that's very exciting i think you see a lot of that in something like jujitsu you see people change you see them come in uh uncertain and lacking confidence and they develop into this per person that possesses both and it's really special to see that if you take yourself all the way back to that 25 year old self i'm i'm assuming from that that that's kind of when you got into martial arts what was it that pushed you towards martial arts the interest in in jujitsu i know you have uh black belt in judo as well so you're well-versed in, in 
two similar but very different forms of martial arts with completely different physical expressions. What was the 25-year-old uh, Scott Burr or early 20s Scott Burr thinking about when he was getting into this? Well, so um, I started, my first martial art was a martial art called Kuxul Do um, that I started when I was 17. And probably the answer is the same for 17-year-old Scott as it is for 24-year-old <laughs> Scott, which is, I guess, I think I was 24 when I got into jujitsu, which yeah. was... Um, I think it, it, even though it was not motivated from what I would call a place of physical fear, right? Meaning I didn't, I wasn't in fear for my physical safety. It wasn't like I, there was a, a gang of kids in my neighborhood who would kick my ass. Trying to beat you up, right? <laughs> I, I wasn't facing that sort of thing. But when I look at that person now, the thing that strikes me is um, he, this basic worldview that the world was antagonistic and generally not necessarily or, or, or maybe a little bit personally malevolent toward me, that it didn't, that it wanted to knock me down. Um, and that, you know, typical kid with a chip on his shoulder stuff and right. that there was something very comforting, I guess would be the word about, um, martial arts in that it seemed to scratch that itch. It was saying, we're going to, we're going to build you up and make it so you have the tools to meet, uh, the most extreme version of an antagonistic external force. Right which would be obviously a physical threat. Um, and so that, um, that mentality of composing the world as individual in generally antagonistic context, I think was probably the, the, which is, you know, again, fairly typical. A lot of people get into martial arts because they're either bullied right. or they're, which, and I was bullied and, you know, all that stuff. Right. So there was a, a childhood face to that, to that feeling, right. That was either from other kids or, you know, other situations. Um, so absolutely got into martial arts for those reasons, feeling like, I mean, I, I've said, I've said before, like, um, it's great to be a black belt. It's probably better to not have been afraid in the first place. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know that it came initially from a very positive place for me. Yeah. Um, and I think on, honestly, what I see a lot in, I think a lot in the martial arts culture, when I look at different figures, I see people who are like a lot, a lot of times it feels like somebody who was very wounded and they made themselves so strong and tough that they're never going to be hurt again. But now they're sort of the strong, tough, dangerous one. And yeah. I, 
and they're they're almost proud of it and they've been like rewarded for it and celebrated for it and it makes me really there's something about it that makes me feel kind of sick yeah (laughs) i don't know that that's uh well i i was talking about this with someone um the other day about this like the martial artsness of martial arts like this and and maybe it maybe it was uh more of an idea than i than i thought it was when i was younger Uh, maybe like love right like love turns out to be quite different when uh, you're in love with someone than you thought it was when you were reading stories about what love will be like or watching Disney movies about how love will... All Disney movies end when they meet. They don't show you the rest of the story, right? <laughs> so you grow up with this concept about how things are are going to be, and then it's, it's different. Things take work. It's hard. And I think martial arts is kind of another one of those concepts that's very, like, by the samurai code, but then you realize that, uh, like with many things in life, if you take someone who... Uh, psychologically is a bully and then you give and and maybe they haven't discovered that yet because they're being pushed or kept down or something and then you give them tools to express the bully in them and now they're really good at being a bully you see that i mean there's some schools some settings that do a better job you see this in the ufc there's some guys that have just a general level of sportsmanship and code and conduct that they carry and then there's guys that are really brash and they are purposely in your face and they uphold that they're kind of the kid that you didn't want to get in a a tiff with because they were that guy and and, and they to your point maintain that and now it's like a suit you know it's mega version of them how do we like you've had such an opportunity to sit down through the writing process and and really I, i would imagine get to know some of these people on a super personal level uh, guys like Robert Drysdale, guys like Richard Bressler, who have been around and been doing this for such a long time. How? What are your thoughts on that ethos? The like, the martial arts kind of code, the martial arts philosophy. Is that real? Is it maintainable? Is it something that you feel is savable? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I suppose it depends on what you're saying. The martial arts ethos is fair um i guess i I could clarify by saying um i would i would say that in my perspective the ethos would be like you know respect for respect for your teammates a willingness to pick up the guy that's uh, been knocked down kind of lead like lead by example humility expressing humility at all stages of growth despite having you know expertise that you could express over other people or not but generally being the further along you get in that journey, the more you're an example of, you know, a, a well thought through mindful person and less of a, like an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there are, There are people who understand that, and I guess this could sound very religious, but I really don't mean it to. Um, There are are positive things in the world and there are negative things in the world. And you have the opportunity as a person to align yourself with 
one of those and give to it what you can give to it. Um, and I think on the macro level, any, 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 any undertaking whose purpose is the development of people, the positive growth of people can be a means for engaging with the, the positive, with the light, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it is all those things that you're talking about, to me, they are, um, they're a prescription for how you take this practice and use it for the the collective growth mm -hmm. um and i absolutely think that is that is possible and that's sustainable um but you as we said it, it is absolutely possible as well to use this in a very selfish nihilistic self-serving destructive way where even if you're not physically abusing people you're using it to promote um arrogance you're using it to promote hardness toughness standoffishness a sense of superiority you're instilling a sense of elitism in your in your students all of these things that are i think corrosive they're 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 perversions of what a, a positive inspirational message could be um so i think i think absolutely it's it's possible to 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 but but it to do what you're talking about sustain that over a period but it 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 has everything to do with the spirit with which you're doing it the the the, the baseline spirit so if you're you're fundamentally disinterested in contributing something positive to the world, no matter how much respect or humility you parrot, you don't actually have it because you don't actually care. Um, right. So, I, but I, so I think there's maybe an underlying uh, question um, that that would determine that that, that would that, that goes into that. Kind of like that what, sense. what that person's underlying, uh, like their internal value proposition is, if they are, so to speak, like the leader of the the academy or the person who has the contact with the people that they're trying to teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough because for things to to grow, they have to be like you have to. It's a sellout problem. For things to grow, they have to get bigger and they have to get in front of more eyes. Sure. Uh, you look at something like ADCC is this fantastic spectacle of grappling on display right. in a way that uh, it, it's not like ADCC never existed, but in the last 10 years, it's existing in a very different way. And with the combination of that and social media and the ability to market yourself on an individual level and create this these personas within the sport element of it, it's gaining traction in a way that it wasn't before. So on some level, that's like a net positive. That's great. More people are going to be exposed to jujitsu and martial arts than before. And so maybe someone who 
uh, is unsure about themselves will take that leap and they wouldn't have if they weren't idolizing people that they saw uh, in the arena. But at the same time, for athletic marketing and the growth of it, because it's an individual sport, there's a degree of like inherent narcissism that you have to possess to be willing to just market the hell out of yourself to get to this level to make to make yourself like a draw right mm -hmm. and then that's like uh to some degree conflicting ideals or conflicting values of that are almost necessary for it to keep growing so how do you support the growth and get excited about it but then I feel like some of the ethos always kind of like spills out by the wayside as a result of that. I don't know. And I could be wrong. I mean, I, you know, I've only been uh, doing this and really involved and excited about it for like six years. So I haven't dedicated a lifetime to it. I haven't seen different phases come and go and evolve. Do you think there's any concern around the way that the sport is growing, how it's growing and like the explosion of like no gi grappling, for example? So one of the things that Richard and I talked a lot about, right? And one of the one of the real priorities in the 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 why now question of Richard's book, right? Why are we writing this now? Uh, had a lot to do with Richard's sense and my sense that the the sport had taken a turn that wasn't necessarily um i how do i say this without without sounding like i'm talking like you're you know, like you're poo-pooing the growth of the sport yeah um there are cultural there are there are practices that are toxic right there 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 are, there are behaviors that are toxic and when we give attention to those behaviors they grow okay and so we we all have the opportunity to, and I, and I, I don't know which um, edition of the book, of Richard's book you read, but I said something to this effect in the forward to the second edition that we all, you know, that the, the culture is a little bit at a crossroads right now, as far as we can see. And we all get to vote for what we want to reward. Um, and that, that vote will determine the, the course for the future, right? If there's, because in a lot of ways, it, it's almost like this. Jiu-Jitsu is, and Howder and I talked, have talked a lot about this in the process of writing his book. Jiu-Jitsu is the art of adaptation. You do what moves the ball forward, right. the most effective and the most efficiently. So in this culture, in in a you drop it into the american landscape in an era of reality tv and clickbait and two three second sound bites where we're so inundated with information and so under siege by the culture so under siege by advertising telling us we are garbage and by people wanting to argue with us about everything you drop it into that culture it's going to become whatever that culture rewards right, right. anything is going to become whatever that culture rewards um all of the people remaking themselves based on what gets them more views on tiktok 
the, these are the evolutionary pressures that create the future. Okay. And so there's actually i'm not even sure how to answer your question that's okay (laughs) this is the benefit of long form it's the antithesis of three second sound bites you you are allowed to not know what to think and to think through it so we're here for it i think i'm i'm too point where I am I'm very concerned about the culture at large, right? And by culture at large, I don't mean the jujitsu culture. I see the things that jujitsu has become, the sport of jujitsu has become as being just another thing that has been reshaped by a culture that rewards uh, ridiculousness, selfishness, self-aggrandizement, bravado, uh, (laughs) and and it it all makes me quite sad. Um, But I don't think there is, do I think jujitsu is a powerful tool to confront these these trends that I see as toxic and negative to, to people and to the future of our society. Absolutely. However, I don't, I see jujitsu as being washed in the same floodwaters. So the problem is the floodwaters, not jujitsu making a decision about which way it's going to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough because like I kind of look at Richard's story, the way that you guys conveyed Richard's story in the book uh, was great. It it gives you an insight into basically jujitsu's prime candidate, right? Like he exactly Richard's kind exactly. of like the ideal use case for jujitsu. Here's a guy who is like thin, kind of frail, is having trouble with his confidence, is has struggled with drugs. I mean, everything in this person's life is kind of heading them in a direction where they're, they don't have their hands on the wheel, but they don't want to be going where they're going. And in comes this martial art and upends everything, everything. It makes this person aware of, you know, how their body feels and how to take care of it. It makes them step really far outside of their comfort zone and challenge their body physically in the face of, um, you know, other people and, and step up to the plate kind of repeatedly over and over whether they wanted to or not. And it, it hardened, I think, in a great way, this person. Not hardened in a bad way. It just, it kind of like, it brought them into a new level of existence that I don't think was possible before. At least this is what I what I get when I read it. And it, I get to the end of the book and I'm like, you know, Richard and I joked on the episode because I, he was talking about walking around in Venice and you know, he's got that umpteenth stripes on his black belt and he carries pepper spray. And he's like, look at the end of the day, if someone comes after me, I'm not trying to do a cross collar choke on him. I'm going to spray him with pepper spray. I'm going to run as fast as my body will carry me. I'm going to get away from there. Yeah. And it was a funny moment because it's, this is what you want uh jujitsu or any martial art to have. an. it's the kind of impact you want it to be able to have on somebody is that they're unsure, they find it, 
it changes who they are, it makes them uh, an advocate for other people that are also struggling the same way. And even when he talks about how he trains with people, you know, how he likes to teach, how he likes to train, and I've talked to other people who've trained with them, and it's uh, a very well th thought out, it's meticulous, it's meaningful, it's impactful. It might not be the craziest inverted, you know, sweeping worm guard, barambolo, whatever, that's going to trend really well on TikTok, but it's like, it's stuff that's teaching people basics so that they can better take care of themselves in life. And I think that that's fantastic. But I worry that people, you know, the more that this grows, which is exciting for someone like me, I can, I love to watch ADCC. I love to go to a UFC fight, sign me up. As it goes more that way, what will happen is it'll look like boxing, it'll look like WWE, it'll look like MMA, and that the Richard person is intimidated by that. Exactly. And that's problematic because then it doesn't have the opportunity to uplift the person who absolutely needs it most, which is the kid that's getting beat up by three kids after class, the person who's being pushed around at school, the person who doesn't have you know, quality parent figures or people to look up to in their community. And so they feel isolated where jitsu, jujitsu or martial arts can provide that family. I fear that that person won't get the opportunity to participate. And that's kind of like you said earlier, that's sad. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And, and I mean, we, we talked about this and that one, there's one section where we say basically what that, it's not, it's, it's about, he, we said something to the effect of, um, if, if 20, 29 year old Richard walked into a school now, would he have continued with jujitsu? And the answer is probably right. no, you know, he walked into a, a smoke, your average school. And so this, not only the effect it had for him, but the effect he's had on others, that whole, right that whole funnel, outward funnel of, of positive is erased. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Talking to, um, I had Chris Howder and Chris Burns on the show following Richard. And it's interesting. There's like the more people that I've talked to is, you know, over like 110 episodes now, there's like two camps of people that I find myself speaking with. There's like kind of the old camp and like Chris Howder, for example, his perspectives are no less useful than someone who just fought and won championships. You know, talking mm -hmm. to both of them, that one's an athlete, one's more of like a <laughs> a legend, like carrying the torch, right? And Chris right. is such a, a fun person to talk to. He's no BS. And I would not expect to go to a, a seminar or something with Chris and not walk out of there with a really valuable piece of information that I can apply anywhere in jujitsu, but there does seem to definitely be like a divide when you were working with, uh, Robert, I know you're, you're editor and designer with his book, which that was the other book of yours, um, that I've been exposed to and read. Were you with him at all for any of the interviews or any of the travel, or were you really looking at this after the fact and just going in and hammering the facts and editing and making sure everything was buttoned up? No, he, he contacted me, really, he contacted me well after the fact, because as you know, that, that film has languished in post-production yeah. hell 
ever since he, uh, <laughs> I mean, just yeah. issue after issue. Um, yep. So this was a way for him. This was a, a consolation prize almost where he said, In, until I can get the movie out, it's, I feel like it's so important that people get this information. I'm going right. to, I'm going to, I'm going to release it in this book form. So no, I, I came on board that project after he was, um, somewhere like, I don't know, 60, 70% of the way through writing the manuscript. And then we started talking about, you know, how we're going to shape this thing and then how we're going to format everything and how, like, and, and so, yeah, I was, I was well after the, all the filming and all the interviewing had, had taken place. As I've actually come to like books, uh, with that style, I don't know. Have you ever read the book? Please kill me. No, it's, uh, this one right in the middle there. It's, uh, it's a book about punk rock music, but okay. it's told every stage of the book is told only by quotes of people that were there at the time of the chapter that it's about. Okay. There's another book called meet me in the bathroom. That's about, um, like music in, in New York through the early 2000s, same way. So you'll read this, this period, but it's really, it's not, there's no author. It's just like people telling their piece of it. And it's really interesting. That book reminded me of it because you get these snippets of like the person that they were going to interview in Brazil, in the school, kind of giving you their little snippet about it. When you're ta thinking about like creative direction on something like that, or, or if you're going in editing and you're looking for congruencies, how do you how do you choose what information to include like how do you decide when you're telling a story the components to give the reader or give the person to allow their imagination to fill in the in-between without missing something so with it was it was the challenge with with drysdale's book was less um choosing which information to include. Um, and, and, and there was a bit of a conversation about this, but we we concluded very quickly in our conversations that because the point was to, uh, um, a, there were sort of two, two ideas that we were kicking back and forth. Drysdale didn't know whether he wanted to basically tell the story of trying to make the documentary or try to tell jujitsu history, right? A history book. Right. And I said, given the format of this material and given what your goal is, which is to get these interviews out to the world, give people access to these interviews, I think trying to parse them all into one linear narrative of this era mm -hmm. um, and then trying to decide because people had conflicting memories, right? Or people right. remembered events that other people didn't remember and all this stuff. So set aside all those questions and just write a memoir of the story of trying to make this movie. That's an interesting, right. it's an interesting enough story because with, with, with narrative, especially with something that has the potential to be very dry, like history. Right. You have to figure out what um, what apple cart you've spilled over, right? What's the thing that needs that I need to figure out? I need to get to the end of. So 
the story, I was like, basically what you have here is you have a guy who has a question. He goes on a journey to gather information. And at the end of it, he has an answer. That's our narrative. So when you throw the ball up in the air in chapter one, everything that I'm reading, I'm reading to find out where does the ball come down? And so that little bit, even though you're not even really aware of it as you're reading it necessarily, it is making you go, what conclusion is Drysdale going to come to at the end of this? He's trying to figure something out. So that you as a character become our vehicle through all of these things. Instead of just saying, here's a bunch of interviews that we did. That's interesting to somebody who is really interested in this material. And we'll read it. But it's not going to draw readers through. It's not readable in the way that a page turner is readable. And I said, how do we make this a page turner? Because your goal is not just to have this information out there. It's to have people read it. So how are we going to get people to read? I mean, this is always the question with books, right? How do we, how do we help people along? How do we take them by the hand and lead them through it? And so the question of composing that book was we have kind of two priorities. Our priority is one. We want to include all of the interviews. You did all of these interviews and they're not out there in the world because the, 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 the movie isn't coming out. And even when the movie comes out, you're going to be able to use 20% of what you record. So we want to put it all out. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is we want people to read it. So how do we encase it within a narrative that people want to read? And luckily it was already encased in a narrative. The re- why did you want to make this movie? Right? Does right. the movie get made? I'm going to read to, f- to find out. Okay. Even though it's not like, will Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star? It's not like, <laughs> it's still enough to get me reading through it. Right? So that question was, was based on those conditions for Drysdale's book. For, for Richard's book, um, in, it, it, it's sort of the, the, the thing that he and I talked about is there's a difference between a memoir and an autobiography, right? An autobiography attempts to tell kind of an encyclopedic history of a person's life. A memoir attempts to t- tell basically one narrative arc in a person's life. So, for example... Um, we could tell if I wanted to write a memoir, I've done a variety of things, but I could tell the story of my life with martial arts, right? Right. So why did I start? Who did I meet? How did I, what was the peak? And then what have I learned and where am I now? That's one story. Now that's not my whole life. That's one part of my life. So that's a, that would be a memoir plot. Okay. And so with Richard, we said, we know we're going to write a memoir. Because this is, a, this is a story about your life with jujitsu. But we said, okay, what is your life with jujitsu about? Your life with jujitsu is about feeling bullied, feeling less than, feeling like you didn't have confidence, feeling like you, you couldn't stand up in the world, feeling like just overwhelmed and beaten down and not having the tools to stand up. And so you are going to, we're going to watch this character develop from this, this, low point to this higher way of, you know, this more skilled, more mature, more wiser person and jujitsu and your relationship with Orion in particular is the vehicle. It's the, it's the, it's the, um, 
yeah, it's it's the vehicle to 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 give you these insights and these lessons. And so we're talking about building these things. Um, and so the information that we include now, also with Richard's book, part of the point was people don't know this history. People don't necessarily know the history of the right. UFC. They don't know the history of the Grace Academy. So we have these two things we're trying to talk about. And so the stories that relate to those two things are what we include. And the stories that don't include that, that don't relate are not necessarily pertinent to this particular book. Doesn't mean they're not valuable. It means they don't go in necessarily this book. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I have reflecting on both of those. I think that one of the things that you guys did really well, uh, that, that you did well in both books is dude, sorry, hold on. You, oh. you totally uh, froze on me. Oh, we good. We're good. Cool. Uh, one of the things that I like about the two books is for Robert's book, for example, the first one, Opening Closed Guard, it's a dense history to unpack. That's Certainly. a lot. I mean, we're going all the way back to the Kodokan in Japan, right? All the way up to current day. I mean, you could, the book could be twice as big and probably still leave out big chunks of, of history and firsthand accounts and stuff like this. Robert's story of trying to do something entrepreneurial and do something different was this thread that you get pulled through all the history. And, and that, as a reader, I happen to like jujitsu, right? And I happen to be interested in the history of it. And I happen to have, you know, followed and known about Robert's career as a fighter and as a practitioner. So for me, it was great. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the book anyway. But I can imagine maybe someone who's, like, you could be someone who's interested in film, right? In documentary filmmaking. You could be someone who... Uh, is interested in creative elements of cinematography and you've always had a passion to go do something on your own, but you're unsure. It's kind of an exciting story about someone figuring it out as they go. So it accomplishes that, but it also gives you this very dense history of something that has a lot of like opinions in it, right? This isn't so uh, cut and dry. Like you just start with this year and you end with this year. And that's exactly how jujitsu happened. There's quite conflicting opinions about how things happen. And that is another exciting element of the book is that it it shows you as he's going through and figuring this all out, you're getting to hear people almost chirping at each other about how it actually happened. And that makes it, uh, it's not funny, but there, it, it gives it another dramatic element to it beyond just reading an encyclopedia or just reading about how someone's life was X, Y, or Z. And then with Richards, same thing is you you get this cool snippet of like, what was happening in Southern California when jujitsu was breaking into the scene, right? It almost picks up, it takes parts of Robert's book and then just magnifies the whole scope of it. So again, it's cool because you could be a UFC fan. You could be a jujitsu fan. You could be a, I got bullied and I want to feel better about myself guy. And it does actually give something to each of those three potential readers. So it, it, it was well done, but I think it's actually hard. It's harder to do that than you would think like you, you guys concept it that well <laughs> thank you yeah yeah no it's i didn't roll out of bed and one day and just yeah well let's let's talk about that so you went to so i'm, I'm from colorado i grew up in steamboat springs okay colorado oh, college beautiful. uh known for hockey of course yep. uh right. but also creative writing their their department's great you went there is did you go there knowing like, I want to go do this. I want to go write books. 
I want to write books about martial arts or did you, how did that all happen? How did you end up pursuing a career that is potentially ex- extremely uncertain? <laughs> potentially. <laughs> yeah. No, extremely uncertain. Um, yeah. so I went to, <laughs> I went to Colorado because I wanted to rock climb. I, um, I, I, I really, I loved Colorado. I had, I had gone on a number of trips to Colorado through high school and I just, I really loved the, the area. I loved the state and, uh, you know, through a very short process of elimination, it's like, oh, this Colorado college is a really interesting school, right? It's a very small liberal arts college. It, um, has a very unique class setup, which is, that trimesters. you take no blocks or blocks. Sorry. I meant blocks. Yeah, yeah. blocks. Yeah, yeah. So you, you take one class for three and a half weeks, you have uh, four and a half days off and then you take another class and you take eight classes a year. And so um, it allows you to have incredibly immersive experiences. So if you're going to take, for example, I took a winter ecology class where um, you know, you, you go, to the class, you know, to one of the lecture halls, you go for two days. And then on the third day, everybody gets on a bus. And for the next week, you're out at this other campus out in a cabin. And every day you're snowshoeing all day, you know, so you can do that because this is the only class you're taking. Um, so really unique school really appealed to me. Um, and of course it's in Colorado Springs, which, you know, Pikes Peaks right there, Garden of the Gods is right there. And then there's all kinds of other great climbing areas within a very short driving radius. So I <laughs> went really uh, wanting to take advantage of the the area. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd always um, been a, um, you know, I was an artistic kid. I did a lot of visual arts. I loved comic books. I loved reading. Um, I was writing short stories in, you know, high school as one of those kids. Uh, I was in like, the writing competition club at my school, all those things. So yeah, when I got to school, I I wasn't at all certain about, you know, sort of what I wanted to do in life or what like life would allow me to do. You know, you have that feeling when you're 18 of like, well, I want to be this, but will life let me be that? Um, (laughs) But I, I wanted to, I wanted to be a writer. I, you know, I, I, I wrote, um, I, I think it was, I think it ended up being novel length or it might've been a little shorter than novel length story when I was a freshman and I was writing, you know, and so by maybe late sophomore, early junior year, I was declared, no, it must've been, yeah, sophomore year declared as a creative writing major. And, um, yeah, so studied under, had some great teachers, won a couple of uh, writing contests in school, wrote a couple more novels and a bunch of short stories and novellas. And then, uh, you know, left school thinking like, all right, this is it. I'm going to get a a writer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, very quickly, you know, sort of hit the wall of uh, reality. And, uh, but you know, there's a, there's a long story sort of in between that we can either go into or not, but yeah, go for it. 
Well, but basically, you know, I, I, so basically for, um, graduated 2005, spent a year kind of bouncing around, took some longer road trips, 2006, my, the martial arts school where I'd been training and I had kind of kept training all through college, would come back for breaks and would train. Um, everybody's starting to get into MMA. The ultimate fighter has happened. We're all sort of like realizing, you know, those of us who still hadn't figured out from UFC one that jujitsu is what's up and like MMA is what's up. We're now being shown again. And so we're all going like, okay, we need to, to get into this. And this, at this point, my, uh, the instructor, head instructor at that school, my buddy, Jason's a cry check. He's like, this is what's up. We got to bring in Muay Thai. We got to bring in jujitsu. He starts going up to a, uh, uh, there was a Hoyler affiliate in Cleveland, a guy named Donald Park, who was a purple belt at the time, uh, was running jujitsu classes out of an Aikido school. Nice. Jason goes and starts training with him. Uh, he starts bringing that back. Um, and then, you know, so it, eventually Donald moves, one of his blue belts takes over that club, a guy named Darren Branch, who's a, a now, a, Darren and Donald are both now Hoyler black belts. Um, and Jason at this point, right. The, the, our little MMA interest in, in the Cooksoldo Academy has grown to the point where he goes, look, I'm going to open a second space next door, put in a cage, put in all the stuff. And we're going to have an MMA school because it felt like among other things, MMA has taken off. This is, there's, there's an opportunity here. We're going to open a gym. We're going to be dudes in. And it turns out a lot of people like MMA and not as many people want to get punched in the face. So, (laughs) but the point is my life for a long time was basically, I, I was running that school, that side of it. Um, I was teaching classes there in the, in the afternoons, in the evenings. And then in the mornings I was writing, I was was just every morning, wake up, make a pot of coffee, write until the coffee's gone. And so I'm just writing novel after novel, after novel, after novel, short story, after short story, after short story, I'm just producing all of this material producing, uh, all, you know, all kinds of, I mean, it's interesting to me. It may not be interesting to your listeners, but like, you know, started out very influenced by Hemingway, got really into Kafka, got started, wrote a bunch of stuff, really influenced by Kafka, got really into Milan Kundera, wrote a bunch of stuff, really influenced by him, got really influenced by this person. That person had this idea, had that idea, wrote this novel, wrote that novel. And, um, it was just mostly just just producing, just producing a ton of stuff. Yeah, and, and are these like, is this just like psychological vomit? Like you, it's your tick, and you just got to write, and so you're writing in you know insane amounts as you're influenced by these different legends from the like literary world, or is this kind of structured? And you're like you're working through characters and different story arcs, and you're like, no, no, no. It's I mean, I'm yeah. this is I'm seriously crafting story. I am studying the story, the craft of of story. This is, yeah, figuring out, yeah, no, every, everything is super duper, duper, duper methodically On. plotted. Yeah. Like, gotcha. um, yeah, like, let's see, what, what's an example? Uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote, man, the one I, that I keep thinking about is I wrote this one book that was really kind of cool. It was like, you, this was years ago, but. There was a thing, this was sort of like back in the dawn of videos going viral. 
And this family had an inflatable something. It was like not a bouncy house, but it was something like that. <laughs> and it got picked up by a windstorm. Yeah. And they were like, my, our son's in there. Our son's in there. And they made this huge issue where like this kid had been, and he, they became famous for like yeah. a week. And then everybody figured out that they were just these attention seeking. Uh, no way. Hoax. It was a hoax. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, that's fascinating, but it's fascinating because it's about what is it? It's a story. It's a, it's about fame. It's about how important right, fame yeah. is. It's about how we reward people who are self, uh, self promoters. It's about mm -hmm. what this culture will fall for, what it wants, what it likes, how we love to celebrate these people. And then how we love to turn on these people. And so I wrote this novel right. that was you know, very similar plot. There had been a flood and this, this guy had this experimental boat and he said his daughter was in it and she got taken over this waterfall. And so there's this search going and they're trying to find her and then they find her, but then they realize she wasn't in the boat, but the entire story was told. And then, and then the fallout of this is that, and then eventually he ends up on like a reality show. And that's the big payoff is that now he's in the public consciousness enough where Half the people will watch him because they like him and half the people watch him because they hate him or everybody will watch right. him because they hate him, but he's famous. That's the right. And yeah. so, but the entire thing is told through um, news report transcripts, Facebook posts, mm -hmm. uh, YouTube video descriptions, uh, just all of these uh, Facebook comments. Like I would have whole chapters where it was a video would get posted and you'd get a timestamp. And at the timestamp, there'd be this many views and this many comments and you'd read the comments. And then an hour later, this many views and this many comments and all the comments are what right. you're now reading. And so the story is being told in all these different ways. So no, this, I mean, it's, it's what, very so wait, what, what happens when that's like, I mean, I love this. There's social commentary around something that's otherwise nonsense, right? Like this, this family with the bouncy castle, like you said, it's not about the bouncy castle and what we should be caring about, which is the fact that their kid was potentially lost. And now these people are frauds. It's right. more about the self aggrandizing, the promotion the fame, the news cycle, whatever. Uh, and, and then this version of it is telling this, this social commentary through this event of the boat going over the cliffs. Now, there's complexity to that and having read other stuff that you've written, I would imagine it was also written well. So what happens when you go to a publisher? Do people <laughs> just look at that and they go, nobody wants to read this or, or like, like why is that book not out and about? What, what is that process? Like, I, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to too many people that have actually gone through the creative process, really hammered something out, have also successfully done this, but you know, you never hear about how many millions of times, you come up with something wonderful and no one gives a shit. Like, what is that like when you present that to, to publishers, to agents, to marketers and, and kind of throw your hat into the mix of like that whole process? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that process is, um, I, you know, I, I finally just, this is an aside, but it'll come back. Yeah. I finally just listened to, Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? Which, wow, on on audiobook. Yeah, yeah. 
which wow. 20 year old book, but it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And there's this great story he tells about he's being interviewed in Japan uh, by this woman who has been hired by a magazine to interview him. And this woman is this wonderful novelist. She's written a couple of novels that are just beloved by critics, but she's not making a ton of money and she's got to do gigs like interview him. And right. he, <laughs> he, he, at the end of it, she says something, you know, they finish up the interview and she says something to the effect of, you know, um, you know, I'm just, I, I just, I'm so not jealous in a negative way, but I'm, I'm, I'm so, I wish my book sold as well as your books. And he says, to Robert, hey, she's saying that to Robert. Yeah. And he says, um, cause you know, rich dad, poor dad has sold millions and millions of copies in however yeah. many countries. Right. And she said, you know, she said, I wish my book had sold as well as your book. And he said, have you thought about taking a marketing class? And she was kind of offended by that. She's like, I'm a novelist. I'm not a marketer. And he, yeah. he points to his book and he goes on the cover. He says, what does that say? And she goes, best-selling author. And he says, yeah, it doesn't say best writing author. <laughs> right. So I like that. Yeah. This is the point is that the ability right. to write and the ability to sell what you've written are two slightly different skill sets. Right? right. And this is not to say that to not to give myself a pass for not being good at selling because <laughs> I should be good at selling. Right. Yeah. Um, but I take a marketing a, class. Yeah. Through a yeah. lot of years, I was, I allowed myself to believe that the writing was all that mattered. And that as soon as I started thinking about how to pitch myself and how to sell myself, it was cheesy and commercial and it wasn't mm -hmm. about art. And because I had my job at the, the fight gym, which was, you know, paying my bills, I was allowed the luxury of, of being able to write what I thought of as quote unquote, pure art, where I wasn't right. thinking about what would sell. And I wasn't even thinking about, you know, I was like, if somebody cares, they'll read it. And if they read it, they'll see it's good and they'll publish it. Because I used to think that whether or not something was good was the thing that made it get published. And the fact of the matter is it can't be garbage, but right. it's much more important that it can sell than it is that it's well-written. So a book like I just described, right, that I titled, it was called The Prank, right? Mm -hmm. Who do you sell that to? Is it, and would Name that be, the demographic. Uh, right, right. How do I pitch that book and say, people who loved this show or this book will love this book? Because that's really what matters is the return on investment for an agent and the return on investment for a publisher. And I'm not, right. I'm saying you don't look, you don't get bonus points for being bad at the game you're playing. I was bad at the game I was playing for a long time. Right. And I don't get to hide behind and be like, well, I'm an artist. Yeah. Art, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. Right. You have a relationship with a piece of art. You don't consume a piece of art. You have a relationship with a piece of art. The point of 
art. And, and, and actually, I was going to bring this up before, but we talk about this in, in Howder's book. Kurt Vonnegut once said that any piece of art is half of a conversation between two people. Okay. So my novel sitting in my desk drawer is not art. I because don't, no one knows about it. If nobody, if it's not meeting people, coming to people, interacting with people, it's, if, it, if it's not something that they can engage with, it's just me patting myself on the back in my office. Right. Okay. So I think that learning to sell your art is even though we all came up in the nineties where, or I grew up in the nineties where it was like, you know, fight club and commercial, you know, corporate America is the enemy and all this stuff. <laughs> I, you like this podcast, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it because you believe that the people you're talking to and yourself have something to give to your listeners. Your, your, right. your question is what, what can, what benefit can be, can be gleaned from, from people engaging with, with these voices, with these ideas, with these people, with this, with these interviews. And so it behooves you to be good at selling this podcast right so yeah. that it can accomplish <laughs> its goal so that it can do what it's supposed to the work it's supposed to do in the world and i was really bad at that part of it so it's hard this it, is just... that that's like uh I, did you were you a fan of punk rock music growing up absolutely 100% okay so which which i, I, I was really into the clash ever... <laughs> i was really into the uk uh and then some of the us stuff okay uh, have you ever seen the movie American Hardcore? No. If if you've not, it's mandatory viewing. It's a fantastic documentary about hardcore music uh, in the late '80s, like through the '90s, and just it's it's very small but impactful place in the world of music. And you watch it, and like, man, these guys were so fucking like real. Like it's crazy. Like they they're showing up to to do shows at places that held like 45 drunks and they slept on, you know, nothing. There was no other existence for them than to just like go ah, scream into a microphone and play hardcore music. Right. And they did it until they just did it until it, it was done. And now some of those guys are still alive, right? They, they, these guys are in their, their late fifties. I mean, I'll use the example of Henry Rollins because he's such a known figure, right? Like people have either seen his spoken word, they've read his writing, they've listened to his music, but like these people are, uh, they're, uh, they're men and their and women in their later points in life. Now they're not boisterous 25 year olds with mid or middle fingers to the sky with reckless abandon and no, no regard for anything they've lived. And they're, they're, people in the world now and like it's just crazy when you see something that's such a rejection of everything and how it is and uh, the antithesis of of society and yet it's a wave that just crashes and rolls over and then you know on the other side of it is are, are there people there are people existing in the the corp in the world that they were so against for so long and you see things like like art your, your thing about the desk is so great because if your shit's in the desk no one knows about it 
it, there's no enjoyment of all the hard work and the art and the originality and the influence and all the stuff that made it what it was that you touched on it and made it the thing. And then no one gets to enjoy it. But how do you cross that bridge without completely selling out? And that is like the crux of the artist is how do I sit here and have this conversation with you knowing that over the weekend, I'm going to be editing, cutting down TikTok videos, Instagram videos, YouTube shorts, all for the purpose of promotion so that somebody can get on here and hear about it that didn't know it existed to hear the wonderful stuff that Scott Burr has to say about something like creative writing process. But if I don't do that part that totally sucks ass that I really hate. <laughs> Right. And then it just sits in this ether of nothing and no one gets to experience it. It's like, right. it drives me crazy, man. <laughs> it's like, drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so you I, go through, like, how do, when you get that feedback from them, what was that evolution like for you when you're now, you know, you've, you've had books published. So somehow you've, you've solved that marketing conundrum to degrees, right? and accepted that there's this like nasty evil that's necessary between <laughs> these thoughts in your head and like getting things out onto uh you know devils like amazon and stuff like that like how, how did that well, how did that push along so okay so punk rock is a great um analogous art form okay mm -hmm. uh because obviously there is okay basically you have, you have a producer and you have an audience okay if what the what if what i mean the, the creator the creative the, the writer the musician the artist whatever okay and you have an audience if what this creator creates resonates with people speaks to them gives them a way to understand themselves that they didn't have before gives them something valuable gives them an experience that they care about um then the thing will will grow on its own okay yeah. what you basically have is record companies publishers uh art galleries those are force multipliers okay right so they you know whereas a hundred people saw the sex pistols in their first show when a when a when a record company gets their their song on the radio a million people hear it okay that's a that's right. a force multiplication force multiplier. if nobody yeah, yeah. cares about that song it's not going to go anywhere okay now right. we've seen obviously modern we can shove a song down america's throat until they think oh i guess it's good but realistically things that find their their the, where when i hear that song yeah that's you're talking about me that's me you're talking right. about. I want to hear that song. This band is, I identify with this band. I can, you know, if, if, if that seed matches that soil, the plant's going to grow. Okay. Right. Publishers, et cetera, are there to, to water. And so, you know, all that stuff there, that's, that's, that's kind of what their, their job is. And so I think, if you're able to 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 look at it in that way, um, then it stops becoming about a question of selling out. Selling out can certainly happen, okay? But when the Clash right, the Clash signed the biggest record deal 
of the time, a million dollar contract with CBS, right? Something like that. And everybody said the clash is sold out. Okay. But because the clash signed that deal, they became for a period of time, the biggest band in the world, because they became the biggest band in the world, people heard them who would not have otherwise heard them. And if you watch interviews with people, like there are a couple of documentaries that came out after Joe Strummer's death, where they'll interview just, you know, just random people who were punks back in that era, who will tell you, I was a skinhead before I heard The Clash. I was a racist piece of shit. And The Clash changed my life. Well, how would that have happened if not for CBS Records? So that's a perfect example of the marriage of yeah. a producer and a force multiplier. Or, or all the people whose lives have been bettered because of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. UFC is a force, you know, the, the, these, these events were force multipliers of this. Right. Okay. I'm a product of that. I mean, I, I became so, a, interested in jujitsu because I watched my favorite fighters grow, you know, my Anderson Silva's and listening to Joe commentate and talk about it. And I was like, man, the second I can get my hands on this and afford it. Right. Cause when I was in Boulder and I was a college student, I wasn't going to shell out 180 bucks a month to go to right. an academy, but, uh, I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. And it was, it was not because I knew someone whose life was, um, you know, humbled and they became a better person. It was because I was watching the UFC. Absolutely. So right. you're a hundred percent right. It was, I was a product of the exposure of the force multiplier with the martial art. Right. So all of which is to say what I ended up actually doing, and this is where the, I, I think, I mean, maybe just, uh, egotistically, I, I want to make this comparison. Yeah. <laughs> At the time when I was writing all of these books and not putting in the work to figure out how to sell them, right? I was, you know, I was querying agents, but I wasn't learning the art of writing a pitch. I wasn't learning the art of tying into a zeitgeist and saying, you know, this book is actually about something that's very timely. And I think or the art of saying, what other books are like this book? So how can I say, hey, look, I think people who read this book will like this book or people who like this show that's a hit will like this book. There's an art to all these things. There's skill to all these things, which are just like jujitsu. It's ways you have an intention, but you don't know how to turn it into effect. So you learn skills right. that help you turn intention into effect. So I didn't have those skills and I wasn't developing them because I was preoccupied with just writing. And I thought if it's good enough, it'll get published, which just isn't the case. And I became quite bitter about it for, for a period of time, honestly. Okay. But the, the upshot of this whole thing for particularly the books we've been talking about, Drysdale's book and Bresler's book um, and Howder's book going forward is that I was doing all of this at a time when the, the technology around publishing had changed to the point that different companies, Amazon being the primary one, had created what they call print-on-demand capability, which is that if you can upload, a, if, you, if you can produce a completed manuscript, I mean, ideally it's very professional. Ideally you have a, a professional looking cover, you have a professional looking interior. You can also upload garbage, right? But right. you can, <laughs> they have a capacity now 
where when you you know you 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 use this platform to you know you you upload all of your content and that um all the information you provide they build an, an amazon listing for it people can go on amazon click purchase when they click purchase one individual copy of that book is printed and bound and shipped to that person so it's it basically and i've said this a few different ways and i can never remember how many the number actually is but a publisher does let's say five things a publisher you're a writer you come to them with a manuscript a publisher will edit that manuscript they will then copy edit that manuscript right they'll fix all the typos they will format and design the actual book from that manuscript, right? So a manuscript is eight and a half by 11 double space times New Roman 12 point font, okay? It doesn't look like a book. It looks like a stack of papers. It looks like every paper you ever wrote in college, okay? Right. A book doesn't look like that. So they turn that manuscript into a, into a book interior. They design a cover. They get other writers to write blurbs for that cover. They write a description for the back jacket, all those things. They print. So they do nothing, pretty much. Compared to what, <laughs> what can, all... I mean, compared no, but compared to what can be done now by yourself, what are they? What's the value add, right? So here's okay. Now we're at number four. They print and bind and distribute. Okay, yes, we can all do that, right? For on-demand companies, let us do that. Fifth thing they do is they promote. Okay, and of these five things, that's the hardest one. Okay, promotion. Promotion. Because they have networks of, right, they, I, as a publisher, I can send these books to the top 20 reviewers across the U.S. And I can right. say, I need you to read this book and I need you to provide a review by next month or whatever it is. They have relationships with bookstores to say, please put a display in the front of the bookstore so that people see this when they walk in. All of these things, they, they can get you on, you know podcasts they can get you on tv shows they can all the things that are going to help make people aware of the book so that the thing that's supposed to happen your book touches a reader can happen they're facilitating that. okay if you're somebody like drysdale and he and i had this conversation the first conversation we had because so this is what i ended up doing right this is i spent a decade basically or I mean, the first time I did this was in 2009. So I said, whatever, I don't need a publisher. I'm going to do it myself. And I'm going to trust that if it's good, readers will find it, which was a trust fall I shouldn't have taken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Contributing to the bitterness. Good on you. <laughs> but um, I said, to, I basically said, because Drysdale called me, Eddie Fivey put us in touch and Drysdale called me and I said, listen, here's what I can do for you, right? I can consult on the story. I can edit. Um, I can, you know, design, format, layout, all these things. And I can help you publish this thing. However, I will tell you that based on who you are, how much visibility you have, the expertise you have in this field, and the following you have, right? You have a very strong pitch to make to a traditional publisher. So the, the move right here might be to have me help you write a pitch letter to try to get you a publisher who will do all those things right. for you. And we went back and forth because a publisher is going to do all those things, but they're going to take 
most of the the profit. Um, but your book might reach millions of people. Right. And he said, you know what? I've got, you know, I've got all these affiliates. I've got all these followers on social media. I've got, right? I think I can, if we produce this book, I can promote it and reach thousands of readers. Um, right. Which, so now we've accomplished that fifth one. Okay. So now we're doing everything. Now, if he had, like, for example, you know, whatever those, I'm looking at my bookshelf, whatever those publishers are that, that promote, that do all the, the martial arts books and stuff like Black Belt Magazine has a publishing imprint and all this yeah. stuff. Could his book have reached even more readers if he went through that? Probably. He would probably have made less money. So it, it's, it's always a, it's always a toss up, but so we, in a very, and this is where the punk rock comparison comes in. You have content producer, you have audience, you don't have intermediary, you don't have record company, you don't have any of that. This is about, this is about artist and audience. And if you can reach the, that audience directly and you can find a way to to get through all the noise that everybody else is, that everybody's dealing with all the time to catch their attention enough to say, wait, I want to carve time out of my day to read that book because what he's saying is interesting or what he's talking about is something I'm interested in or what he's talking about is something that I identify with. Then you, you can, you can have a successful book that is independently published and, and, and created like that. And so that's kind of the, the state of affairs with, um, well, I mean, honestly, like the way you and I started talking was, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of a lot of the promotional efforts for, for Bresler's book. People, I don't know that people necessarily realize that that book was independently produced and that we depend on and sincerely appreciate people reading that book and telling their friends because it really right. is just you and us trying to get that, that message out there. There is no publisher out there pushing this. If I don't, if I don't wake up in the morning and start telling people about the book, they don't hear about it. If you don't wake up in the morning and tell people about the book, they don't hear about it, right? There's no just background machine running. So that's the, the challenge, but kind of the uniquely cool thing that we can do now in the, in the sort of the publishing landscape. Um, and I so that's, that, that's the way those that came about. Right. The there's a couple of things to touch on here. One is I, I think that this is a, a positive argument for the value of social media and self-promotion is it does allow you the opportunities to do really cool shit like this. You know, like Absolutely. if Robert had never been comfortable promoting himself, be that outside of his fight career during, maybe he worked alongside people that helped promote him or whatever when he was fighting. But if, if he wasn't comfortable with that, he would not have afforded himself a platform to even begin to have the discussion about self-promotion for something like a book. And when you're talking about going through a publisher or not, it, it, it's not like they take a little bit, they house the, the cash, right? So if you're oh, an yeah. independent artist, putting all your work out there, and then you're going, like you said, there's pros and cons, but they're gonna eat a lot of the revenue. So if it ends up being a book that sells well, but not fantastic, you know, you really don't see that much and then your work's out there and you're not getting to appreciate it. You see this happen all the time in the music industry too, right? With artists and, sure. and their deals. So to some degree, it's it's incredible. And that's a huge incentive as a creator of any kind, whether it's digital creator, you're a, a, a painter, a photographer, a writer, 
to double down on investing in how to market yourself and then how to do it in a way that makes you feel comfortable and is organic and people can get on board. And then on the other side of that, and I, you know, I think about this a lot with things like the show or, or like you're saying with, with Richard's book is there are two ways to grow. And right now I think that everyone is super sick of one of them. And that's the one where you open your computer or your phone and you're just inundated with ads that are tagged to your cookies on your computer. Cause you looked at a pair of shoes randomly and it's like, oh my God, like, I don't even want to open my phone because it's going to tell me about hoodies I need, sweatshirts I need, geese I should buy, no gi equipment I should get, recovery supplements. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, I want to find out about something because my homie Scott told me that it rips. And he's like, you have to listen to this. You must read this book. It, Dude, it's just, just trust me on this one. People used to do that. You would get a really, really strong recommendation from someone who is a 100% homie of yours. And you would go, Okay, well, if you co-sign it, I'll watch that movie. And when I think about something like this show, I could put a bunch of money behind Google AdWords and like shove, how can I shove this down people's throat, right? Because the guests are, are great and the conversations can have impact, but I don't want it to spread that way. I want someone who listens to this to go, man, that was cool. Like, wow, that was an hour and 45 minutes, but I gotta share this with someone. Because when that happens, it's really powerful and it's, it's organic. It's just like, I read, I read this book and, and I gave it to people at the academy. Cause I'm like, dude, this book is sweet. It's rad. It's a cool story about someone who's dedicated their life to this. And I know that you'll, even if you don't, even if you don't read it front to back, which I hope you do, you're going to find something that's like, wow, that's cool. I like, I didn't know that about the UFC or, oh man, that's really cool that that, you know, that person's life was impacted that way. I didn't know that they did challenge matches in Horian's garage in Southern California. That's crazy. And then they go and look it up online. But that word of mouth recommendation is maybe it doesn't grow like this, but it grows like that, you know? Well, and dude, how, and I, how, what's the value on that? Well, I so appreciate you telling your, telling your friends about it. By the way. Absolutely. But. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm a fan of that kind of word of mouth. I th- think about a lot of the things in my life that I love. As much as we, you know, praise originality, and I actually really liked hearing you talk about the 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 authors that inspired you to write these incredible authors from before. They influenced you. You can admit that as an artist. That's part of the creative process. You don't think of this stuff in a vacuum. No one ever has. And they weren't doing it either. So the humility to to respect the people that impact that, right? That's a really important part. But that recommendation, getting stuff from people that you trust, that you know, that are in your circle of immediate care, that like if if someone called you and they needed you to stop what you're doing right now and come to them, that you would go do that. When those people tell you things, that's... Those are the best things, always. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember as you're saying this, like I, I had a conversation with somebody who, I, I feel like he was like studying marketing or, you know, as a young kid. And I was asking him like, what is, oh, basically what I said to him was, I feel like social media is a bubble. I feel like I have never bought something. I mean, 
Maybe that's extreme, but I, I mean, I, I can't think off the top of my head of ever seeing a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad <laughs> and clicking through and buying the product. <laughs> and I'm sure people do, but I Millions. have never done it. And it made me think like, I almost feel like the entire social media platform, which is the its entire revenue stream is based on the illusion of the value of advertising on social media is a bubble that there is no uh, conversion that you're not converting sales from these ads. And I, so I, I kind of asked this kid, I was like, is, am I right in thinking that? Cause I just don't feel like this is real. And he goes, you know what? Like we have found that even still, despite all of Google AdWords and all this stuff, the most valuable form of, of the thing that converts sales is word of mouth. People hearing from people that they know and trust that something is good. Even in today's environment in which you have all these different venues and all these different opportunities to advertise and all these different ways you're consuming content, still hearing from somebody that you, that you trust is the thing that's going to predictably convert a sale rather than, which, which tells us what? That tells us that the imperative is to produce something valuable produce something valuable and it'll, it will find, you know, if I, something hits me, I'm going to tell somebody about it. Right. And if it doesn't, I don't care. Right. Well, I think so it, you... it touches on this, uh, impa this level of impatience that I think is it's present. I don't, I don't mean to be like the old man shouting at the cloud here and being like, you know, my generation and blah, blah, blah. But like, there is a level of impatience. There's certainly, and, and my generation has this too, but there's a level of entitlement. And these are, these are present things. These are present studied psychological factors that are present in every generation, expressed more in others. And when you're impatient, you don't want to go through the process. And so you don't want to wait around, whether it's your project or somebody else's. And I, I mean, to full circle unnecessarily all the way back to jiu-jitsu because it's very easy to do. Jiu-jitsu is a prime example of a process you cannot rush. Yes, you could go online, you could buy a black belt, and you're a full-blown fraud, and you'll be exposed the second that you give yourself an opportunity, like, you know, seven ways from Sunday. But right. it, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to climb that ladder. And it gives you a lot of things in the process because if it were quick, you wouldn't notice all the changes that happened for you to be able to sit here and tell me about how the 25 year old mentality of the ego and kind of like going at it physically all the time. And now be at a place where like, it's about being present and being like, it's still teaching you something at this point, dude. And, and you've had, you know, you hold two black belts in two different martial arts. I mean, you look at the timeline it takes. And I think for me, and maybe you share some of this as someone who is creative in their endeavors. Jiu-Jitsu teaches me a lot about it, it being okay that things aren't going a million miles an hour every single second. Like, it's okay for the show to grow over time. It's okay for it to connect with people really slowly because someone recommended it here or there. Because it's okay to be a purple belt for four years. It's okay to be a white belt for five years. It doesn't matter. It's like, are you... Are you picking up the lessons as they're coming to you? And do you have the awareness to recognize them? And is it fitting in your life the way that it's supposed to and giving you good challenges and pulling you outside of your comfort zone? Because the reality is 
if the black belt's the perceived end of that journey, you're in for a rude awakening. That's why so many people stop when that happens. They didn't prepare for the fact that it would be achieved. So like, if you're not ready for the, all the growth that you think you need, it's going to happen someday if you keep at it. And if you're not mentally prepared for that, to handle that, then you'll, it'll be the most unbecoming <laughs> moment of all time, right? If the book showed a million copies, but you really didn't care about people finding the story, you'd feel so empty. You know, it would be nothing. It would just be cash in a bank account with nothing behind it. And, and that would be a travesty. So no, it, like, it's a, it's a wonderful Dale, parallel. <laughs> <laughs> Drysdale and I talked a lot about, like, um, I don't know what he's doing with this, but after opening Closed Guard, he had another book that he was, um, he, he, had, he had envisioned and he, you know, he and I kicked back and forth a manuscript for a while. Um, the Rise and Evolution of Jiu-Jitsu. So not that one. Uh, so this was... No. Oh, a different one. Okay. Yeah. So in between, there was a book that he, he, had, he had thought of, he wanted to write called, uh, I believe the title he had at the time was The Inner Game of Fighting. And... Oh, I would read that. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, and it was, you know, we... we the, based on the reaction you just had, I think you had the reaction I had when I heard that title that was like, I am going to get some insights from a high, high, high level competitor about the mental, the mental side of this. And it, it, the manuscript he ended up producing it, it, it didn't, it didn't quite achieve that. And I kept kind of like pushing, I was like, I think, I think this is what you need to talk about. I think this needs to be the focus. And eventually he shelved that and wrote the Carlson Gracie book. And I don't know, I, hopefully he comes back to it because there's a lot of really interesting ideas in there. Um, but one of the things we talked about in there is, or he talks about, and that we discussed a lot in this process is that um, value is a, a, an unfixed phenomenon, right? Value exists directly in proportion to how much a thing costs you, right? The thing is worth whatever it costs to get it. And so you can't say a black belt is valuable. There is no inherent value in that, that belt. There's no yeah. inherent value in a purple belt. The value is how, how hard was the climb to get there? And when you get there, right, uh, how you feel about that thing is going to, is going to directly, not vaguely, directly reflect what, what the path was. Um, and so if you want to have a valuable life, if you want to have a life filled with things that are valuable, then what you have to realize is that what you really want is a difficult life. You want a challenging life. You want everything to be a challenge because you want the things that you achieve to be valuable and meaningful to you because things that, you know, a life filled with things that aren't valuable or meaningful is a pretty sad existence. And so all of those days that, you know, you talk about, of, you know, feeling like, man, I don't know if I'm getting very better. I just feel like it's no point. I'm just grinding. And like, those are the challenges that make the thing valuable when you get there. I'm not saying those are the yes. lows that makes the, make the high sweet. I'm saying literally, if you want it to be a matter to you, if you want, if you, think a jujitsu black belt is something valuable. If right now in your mind, whoever's listening, right? 
you have that up on that pedestal and you want to feel like when you get it, you got that thing that had all that value, then you better hope that you have to crawl on your knees over broken glass to get it because you want to know that that value is in that thing when you get there, right? There would be nothing worse than showing up tomorrow. You've been training for five years, a couple of days a week, and somebody's like, well, there's a black belt, right? Even if you're tapping the black belt. That would be the worst. Right? It would be worse. And, and, and that's the thing. It's That's not about, uh, you know, it's so cool when you see, you know, you see a, uh, you see a white belt get a stripe and they're, they're so jazzed about it. Mm-hmm. You see a black, you see a brown belt about to get their black belt, and so many times they're they're like, no, you know, like v- verbally and physically, they're like, I'm, please, I'm not ready. Like, no, no, and it's because they have they felt like they haven't crawled over enough glass. Like that's such a good example, and it's true. It's it's a overwhelming moment because of everything that it means not the it's dude it's a piece of it's a piece of cloth tightly yeah. bound cloth with a black spot on it. like it, it's it is not a superpower it does not you don't put it on and everything it's just a piece of, it holds your belt you know it holds your gi on mm-hmm. and when you're doing no gi it's not even there but it's that the process and that again not to draw just parallels endlessly but like what you said about life is so true. I mean, if it look at people that have extremely comfortable lives, when it's too comfortable, they're unsettled, anxious, mm-hmm. uh, up and down. Right? It's because there's no there's no resistance challenging them for their spot of where they're at. There's no litmus test going on, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree with you more that you want it to be. You don't want it to hurt you, like no. irreparably, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you don't want someone to burn your manuscript when you don't have it saved on the computer and you're eighty percent done. That right. sucks. But like, you do want the resistance. You want to feel that, and it it makes you a. Uh, I think it makes life better. Yeah, um, I a hundred percent agree. Well, Scott. I could end up doing this all day. It's see, it's an hour and thirty minutes, just like that. And I mean, oh, wow. from literary creative process to what it means to get a black belt to the ups and downs of creativity and punk rock music, I knew that this episode was going to be fantastic, and we'll definitely have to do it again. But oh, I really want to thank you for one for taking the time to do it, but also just the willingness to go in a bunch of different directions and and have the conversation. I think that those are the ones that are you know. They're the most fun when it's the least structured, but we still hit a bunch of really interesting points. So I appreciate it, man. Dude, it was my pleasure. I had a blast. So thank you so much for having me. Hey, friends. Abe here. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and sticking around to the very end. If you want to support it, leave a five-star review on Spotify or check out www.mainideapodcast.com. Join the mailing list and stay up to date on all things The Main Idea from future guests, sponsorship opportunities, products I'm using to help me perform at my best, invites to ask me anything, and any upcoming pertinent information to the show. I cannot do this show without you. It is literally why I show up each week and put these episodes together. So thank you from the bottom of my heart from being part of the community. I hope you have a great day.